Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 246, and today's guest is Greg Alvo, CEO and founder of Order Groove. My coffee is shipped to me every two weeks, and it is outstanding. It's on a subscription, and therefore, it's one less thing that I need to think about when I go to the grocery store. In return, the brand has me locked in as a loyal customer where I'm not tempted by the other options while walking down the aisle. It is such a win-win. Well, subscription commerce or relationship commerce, as Order Groove has coined it, is just expected these days. However, this wasn't the case when Greg started the company. At that point in time, just three companies offered it. Sometimes when you're early to market, it can be catastrophic, but in the case of Order Groove, it gave them the opportunity to build a platform that was ready for prime time once the market caught up. When you look at Greg, it's not a shock that Order Groove has thrived. Entrepreneurship has been rooted into his DNA, and it even dates back to his high school days when he started a couple of businesses, one of which was selling sports paraphernalia through eBay, and another was a computer consulting firm. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on managing your company through an early-to-market scenario, creating his own major in entrepreneurship at George Washington University, his foundational experience at liquidation.com, a B2B e-commerce marketplace, which went public, the early days of Order Groove in terms of how the company got started, and a great story on how he raised initial funding, all the details on Order Groove and where the business is today, plus some customer examples, advice on hiring for your executive team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is very likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFist podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Oh, and while you're there, please don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Greg. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, great to see you. Uh, It's been a while and it's great to be here with you today. It has been a while and a lot has happened since we originally chatted, which I'd have to check the dates. I think it's been like four years ago since we met, which was amazing. And Order Groove has come so far. Um, So we're going to talk about your background and obviously uh, scaling companies and lots of other cool advice questions for other entrepreneurs to follow. But to kick things off, you know, when I think about your story, um, you know, you were early to market with Order Groove and we're going to talk about Order Groove. So this is more of a broader thought, but a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with being early to market. And with Order Groove, you were in a category that didn't exist yet, subscription commerce. It's something that every consumer expects now, but at that point in time, when you started the company, it didn't exist. <laughs> so one thing that entrepreneurs struggle with is being early to market. How do you build that market or how do you make sure that you don't fail before the market's ready and you're like, oh yeah, I, I had that idea first, but you know, timing was off. So how do you manage through that? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important question. It is very, um, it's very hard and very gratifying to be early. Um, I mean, here's the, here's the brutally honest truth. If I knew I was going to be eight years early to the market, I might've waited or done something else for the time being. Now we're in a very you know, good spot because it allowed us, and I don't have many complaints about it, it allowed us to build the best product in the world for what we do and really be the leaders in the space. Um, and now the market's obviously growing exponentially and I feel extremely grateful that I've started the business and, um, and, and stuck through some really hard, hard and challenging times early on. But 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I started Order Groove, I was very keen that this was going to be a big idea. The truth is I was in my 20s and didn't think about as, as much about timing it. I thought I knew e-commerce was taking off. Um, but we were, you know, we were, we were a number of years early to the market, but it also allowed us to invest a lot in product early on. Um, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs would be to be thoughtful, honestly, to be thoughtful about timing. Uh, you know, um, I, I wasn't as thoughtful early on about the timing of a market. Um, you never get a nail it on its head. Like the nail market timing is very, very hard, but, you know, being a few years off here or there, like it's not the end of the world. Um, you get, you could focus on really, you know, um, zoning in on what are the problems you're trying to solve and falling in love with the problems versus the solutions. I think that's the most important thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you really need to uh, persist through it or failure is okay too. Like, I think like what I would say is like a lot of companies, most companies, I think is the stat don't, don't make it being too early or running out of money, which is sometimes tied together um, is probably the main culprit. Um, but um, if you do to, if you do believe and have conviction, like I always did that order groove that, 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 that our market um, we call it relationship commerce, subscription commerce is a um, very um, large space in, uh, and growing space in the future, then you got to really find the believers that see your vision the same way. Believers are investors, believers are advisors, believers are mentors as well. Believers are your team members that you're going to hire. Believers are your customers that you're going to bring on. And it's a, cl it's a classic Jeffrey Moore, like crossing the chasm, like to get to the market, to be um, mature, you need to find those early adopters that are like that want to blaze the new trail that want the thing that's in alpha or beta. <clears throat> and then you just got to obsess over making them really happy. So that they tell the next, you know, cohort and, and uh, of the market, how great this is. Um, but I think really, you know, any, even if you're not really like just persistent, it's probably, I would say the most important trait of successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it can be such a wonderful thing if you do survive in the market, the timing is now and you have that lead of a platform that is lights out far beyond the competition of just trying to figure the space out now. So it can be just such a, a great strategic advantage uh, long term. Yeah, but, I, I okay, just posted this. Uh, I just posted this on LinkedIn. Sorry to interrupt you, Keith. Like, yeah. Uh, yesterday, I think it was when I started Order Group. There were three online retailers at the time doing subscriptions: Amazon, QVC, and Petco. And wow, um, <laughs> should have quizzed. You. I should have quizzed you on who those were. And. There was just last week a great research report about the total addressable market of physical good uh, subscriptions um, done by Juniper Research. And it's, um, it's physical goods is the fastest growing subscription category in the world right now. And it's supposed to be um, double digits percentage of e-commerce in the next five years, double digits of global e-commerce. Wow. Yeah. So it's like- <laughs> well, It that, just that, makes that, sense. That, it, of course it makes sense in 2022, but- you know, I was told otherwise 10 years ago. And by the way, they might've been right. The folks that told me otherwise, at least back then, um, yeah. you know, the only thing I would sound persistent and sorry, I want to get to your next question is that yeah. sometimes if you're not actually going on the right path or the vision is not the way like formulate or coming out to how you feel it um, originally thought it would be, you either have to pivot or like stop persisting. Sometimes I've also seen entrepreneurs persist through things they shouldn't have persisted through. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's important to not just bang your head against the same ball over and over again. Yeah, no, that's definitely great advice too. All right, well, let's rewind the clock. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, I begged to my parents, uh, ask, ask you to uh, ask my parents about how I uh, was as a child. No, I was always like a creative, you know, um, rambunctious, um, 
trying to problem solve kind of kid. Um, you know, very like I guess, loved hanging out with friends and family and um, grew up a competitive tennis player uh, in Miami and traveled throughout the state of Florida, traveled throughout the nation. That was my life, you know, uh, seven, I don't know, six, seven hours a day in the summer and then three hours a day um, during the school year. And, you know, you learn a lot from being a competitive athlete. You know, you learn a lot about your, yourself. You learn a lot about mental toughness and discipline and just training and, and, and hard work and ethic. Um, and then in tennis specifically, you, you learn a lot about, you know, being the only one on the court, which is actually not as, not as relatable to business, which is a team sport, in my opinion. Um, but it's also relatable for a CEO where sometimes, you know, it, it's, it, it can be lonely when you're building a business, even though you have partners in your you know, executive teams and board and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Miami, um, moved to uh, DC to go to George Washington University, um, where I created my own major in entrepreneurship and small business management and um, met this, uh, this woman named Carolyn, my next door neighbor, sophomore year, who ended up becoming my wife. So ah, that's awesome. Now, yeah. entrepreneurship started while you were in high school, though. So um there was like two different businesses that you started one that was selling posters for like championship sports teams on eBay, which was as a teenager, that's, you know, that's ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great story. Um, <clears throat> where, so I grew up in Miami at the time I was a really big hurricanes fan. Um, I forget what year it was. I want to say it was like 2000 and it was like around 2001 or two or maybe even three. Um, you know, Ohio State beat the Hurricanes in the Fiesta Bowl, and there was this there was this call of pass interference in the, on one. You know, I think it was like the last play of the game, and it was just it was it was a debatable call. And so I went on Print Shop Deluxe six and created a, a poster that said, "I never saw pass interference," and it had some graphics <laughs> from the Miami Hurricanes. And I ended up selling you know a bunch of those for um, not an insignificant amount of, of money, and on eBay. Uh, and then one morning um, at 9 a.m. on a Saturday, there was a knock on our door from, it was called um, CAPS, the Coalition of Advanced Protection of Sports Logos. And it was essentially <laughs> threatening, you know, trademark infringement um, yeah. and, and, and copyright infringement. And um, they were probably right. I just didn't think about it at the time. So I had to write them a nice check and uh, learn some learn some good lessons there. And my, my father retold that story at my wedding, actually. Um, which I hadn't heard from him in 20 plus years at the time. <clears throat> and then I started another company called Botech, which was a, it was a computer consulting firm, you know, back in the day when there was money and hardware, uh, I would, I would, you know, I had a few hundred customers in South Florida that I would build, sell, repair computers for, and learned a lot of great lessons from that. Um, a lot around margin, a, a lot around, um, you know, just sales and customer service and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's obvious entrepreneurship was in your blood because even at George Washington, you created your own major entrepreneurship in small business management. Yeah, um, it's just like, you know, the um, the it just felt like it was appropriate to have something that helped one of the most important parts of our economy, entrepreneurship, and it didn't exist at GW. So I had to get a sponsor and that sponsor had to, you know, sponsor essentially criteria and curriculum that I put together for this, this um, individualized concentration, which is now actually a major, like you can major now and there's a whole entrepreneurship school at GW. At the time there wasn't. So um, that was awesome. I mean, I took some, I had some amazing professors um, 
you know, including one that I actually speak at, uh, Professor Kathy Fry, who I go back usually twice a year and speak to GW students, which is where I was, you know, when I was in school in her class. So it's it's really gratifying um, and, you know, just w- wonderful memories from those times. So while you were in college, you, you, your career got its start, right? You actually worked with a, a company that was in the e-commerce industry. Yeah. So you have overstock.com, which was like B2B to C custom. Like, so you, you know, you get a customer return as a manufacturer or a retailer, that retailer can't resell that. You would sell that to a, um, uh, to a consumer on overstock.com. My, our, our, my company I worked for was called liquidity services, Inc liquidation.com, which was essentially overstock, but B2B to B where we would sell not just a TV at a time, but a pallet or a truckload and get a higher percentage recovery on the retail dollar for retailers and brands. I was doing sales and business development. I was in my, you know, I was probably 19 at the time or early 20s um, and ended up like doing, doing well in sales there. Um, and, you know, was with a company when they went public on the NASDAQ, uh, which was a wonderful experience and ended up leaving there to move on to start order group, which we launched in September of 2010. So what was the original idea when you just started out? Like how, how did, like what, what prompted you to go and pursue this? So as a competitive athlete, you go through a lot of supplies often, whether it's strings or sneakers or tennis balls or what have you. And you you um, you could purchase them at the time from the the, where, the, the catalog, which was Tennis Warehouse catalog, uh, who I have still not signed as a customer. So if you're listening, uh, one day I'd love for you to be a customer. Um, or you could go to the local pro shop, GT Sports, which was you know, it was like three times the price. And, um, and to get the same supplies and you'd naturally go to the local pro shop because you would forget to reorder from tennis warehouse. So they lose, you know, they get two orders a year for me or maybe three versus GT sports, which was a wonderful pro shop and still exists in Miami. Um, but it was more expensive and, and, um, you had to go there 15 minutes and 15 back. And it always felt like that being automated or a subscription would benefit, um, you know, frankly, both parties, but certainly the tennis warehouse ca- uh, catalog. The other story I would tell is that my, my, my mother, um, who I love dearly, um, for the past 43 years has been a subscriber to um, a company called the Rich Plan. Rich Plan is a meat delivery service. Think like Butcher Box, you know, yeah, in, like yeah, the, sure. in like the 80s. I think she's the second <laughs> longest tenured uh, subscriber with like a 43-year lifetime value, and she still gets it. <laughs> And well, that, that reminds me of growing up and I grew up in New Hampshire. They had Swan, I think was the name of the company oh, yeah. that did the same thing. Swan. They drive the truck around. Yeah yeah. 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 Swan. Yeah. And anyways, like this, the, the consumer experience, like it was very personalized, you know, somebody would show up at our doorstep with a box of meat and it would load the fridge in the, in the freezer, in the, in the garage. And it was a true relationship that still exists by the way. And that's really the essence of the category we're creating that we call relationship commerce. Um, it's really, how do you create a relationship between a brand and a consumer? And if you do it right, they're going to reward you with 43 years of lifetime value dependent on your product on a monthly basis. It's truly remarkable, um, that she still has it. And, um, yeah, I mean, that company still exists. It's amazing. That's so amazing. So how did you get started? Like you're defining this comp, this this whole industry that doesn't exist. Like there's e-commerce happening, people are buying things online, but no one's thinking about selling things on a subscription and, you know, going on to coin relationship commerce. Like how'd you even get started with the company and having someone believe in, in writing you a check? That's a great, that, 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 I, that's a good question. So, or, or also a good story. I um, pounded the pavement early on and um, from a check side, you know, I, I, uh, 
funded the business with very little uh, capital early on. I think it was like 10 or 20, I think it was $20,000 early on um, that I had accumulated over the years from working in other, other areas. And, um, you know, what was clear that we're going to need funding to build a proper software platform. So in, I, was, I was sitting in LaGuardia Airport during a flight delay, which as anybody that's listening knows LaGuardia, back in the day, that versus the new terminals, a horrific experience. And I was striking up conversation with, with you know, um, with the guy next to me. We were both in like shorts and T-shirts and you know, sandals and, and upset by our flight delay. And this guy, Rick Wolf, had just sold his business. Uh, lives in Long Island City or worked in Long Island City. And, um, you know, Rick and I hit it off. Wonderful guy who's a good friend of mine. And two weeks later, he wrote me my first $50,000 check for the business. Um, Rick's still an investor. Rick has, you know, done, done very well um, and, and, and in terms of order groove and, and will continue to. Um, and then Rick introduced me about a year later to a gentleman named Richard Lavin, who's one of my coaches, uh, one of my closest friends, who was um, uh, Rick's coach. And um, I'm sitting at Pershing Square in Grand Central Station, at, at Grand Central Station in uh, Manhattan. And I'd say, hey, Richard, I really need some help raising money. Uh, and he goes, I've got the guy for you. And Richard um, knows a lot of folks. He, he started, a, he co-founded a firm called Tiger 21 um, that, that, that has a lot of angel investors and such in, in the mix. And Richard introduced me to a guy named Mark Kress. And Mark Kress, um, had a company that did exceptionally well um, named Topic, T-O-P-P-I-K. The parent company was called Spencer Forrest. And Topic is the product that you've seen on TV that sticks to the remaining hair on your head. Um, if, you're, if you're balding, you, this is synthetic fiber that sticks to the remaining hair on your head through, I think it's like static electricity or something, some form of kinetic energy. I'm not a physicist. And um, and it makes you look like a full head of hair. And Mark had an incredible subscription business that he was running offline through the phone for 20 years. And he goes, and he was really smart. He knew if he put a million bucks into order group, he would in return become a customer and make probably tens of millions of dollars through our software. Mm -hmm. So Mark and I got together and tried at the Tribeca, uh, uh, the hotel in Tribeca, I forget what it's called, had, hit it off, just a wonderful guy, great entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, he ended up becoming one of our first customers and, and, and an investor who's <laughs> just a, a wonderful person ended up selling his business to church and Dwight, the, uh, world-class CPG. Um, so that, that, that's how I got started. So it really, it comes from, I think the moral of the story there is, um, just, you know, you kind of, I'm a firm believer that yes, a lot of business is getting lucky, but I think in many ways you create your own luck. Like that story sounds really lucky. Um, and it was, there's no, there's, but like, I think if, if you kind of miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, if you think about the Wayne Gretzky quote, quote, and if you don't talk to Rick, you don't talk to Richard, then you don't talk to Mark. Um, and I was, I remember sitting at LaGuardia thinking like, I need to raise money. Let me see if, if, if Rick next to me is, uh, you know, he's, he's, I remember hearing him talk about business and we just hit it off and it ended up turning into something. So, um, I think it's just like, you know, a lot of times it's just having a clear vision and going after it through again, persistence and just networking and, and putting yourself out there and frankly, being uncomfortable. One of our core values at order group is um, comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that's where a lot of magic comes from in those moments where, you know, you're, you might be a bit uncomfortable um, and vulnerable and, and, you know, who knows what follows. So true. Like striking up that conversation. And that's, this is what I try to instill in, in, in my, I have two teenage girls and I tell them, 
the whole world's connected somehow, some way. So you never know who you're talking to. So always be mindful of that. All right. So and, and the, to top this off, you know, raising capital at that point in time was very hard. You see companies, especially in New York, right? New York, there's so many startups raising capital every day. I get, you know, the Dan Premack email from Axios and it's just like New York, New York, New York. When you were raising capital, it wasn't vibrant to raise gobs of money like it is now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember when like, I would read articles about people just a few years ago raising like 20 million, maybe 50 million. And you'd be like, oh my goodness, like, you know, good luck. <laughs> and, right. um, and now it's, you know, an everyday occurrence. Yeah, I think, listen, I think it's very clear that um, software businesses are good, you know, long-term bets that the unit economics are sound and, and they have a great product and a big market. Um, you know, obviously the market's going through some co- compression or correction right now with the, the, the tech sector, but I think, vector, I think investors know that or, or have seen now that these companies can remain high velocity for a long time. And if they wanted to, they could be profitable and create, you know, hundreds of billions of, of dollars in enterprise value. So um, I think the markets are just so big and growing that they can support large checks. I also think, you know, that you're going to see a lot of folks that have been overcapitalized and either drown in their own gasoline or, um, you know, just, just go out of business. I think the tide will come out at some point. I hope it doesn't, you know, but I just, that it's very cyclical, as you know. Um, and I think sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for too. You got to be just very thoughtful about how much money does this business need to get from this inflection point to the next one um, and make sure you have enough capital plus plus, but like, you know, overcapitalizing has other um, areas you have to be careful for, but you know, it's obviously better than undercapitalizing. Yeah, I think there's a balance. And I look at, uh, you know, if I look at Crunchbase and OrderGrew's funding, it's like, it makes sense. There's milestone, you raise money that, you know, you have a runway, you hit a milestone, you raise money, but it's yep. not like you went out and raised 250 million at a, you know, $1.5 billion valuation. Cause then the, the investors got to get a X amount of return on that type of valuation. And it's like, talk about, you know, the pressure is always on, but there's just a whole ball game of pressure when, when you're kind yeah, of yeah. Play, playing that game. So yeah, no, totally. and, I, and I think the market that we're in absolutely supports like outcomes that and larger. But um, and, and we have we have raised some capital since uh, quite a bit of capital since then. We just haven't um, put it in crunch base or fully announced all of it. So mm-hmm. smart. Although I guess I am right now. <laughs> uh, there you go. Right on VentureVis. So, um, OK, so at what point did the business get to where it was like, OK, the market is happening. This is now like you have customers, there's sales, there's, you know, the platforms being built. So you're coining the term, the term relationship commerce. Like what, what was that like product market fit or whatever, however you want to you know phrase it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say, honestly, it's only been the past few years in the, in the sense that the market has come to a point where it's, Hey, this is not a nice to have, this is a requirement. And when that happens, everything gets easier, not easy, but easier. Um, the, it's very clear what has to be on the roadmap. It's very clear, you know, um, where the repeatability is. It's very clear, um, you know, where, like, how do you, how do you drive the most success for your customers? Because you're hearing it over and over and over again. Um, so it just, the the problems become potentially larger, but much more clear. And I think therefore more solvable. Um, so it was really I would say only a few years ago, and it's frankly just market pull. Like we were pushing, pushing, pushing forever, evangelizing. And then, you know, COVID was certainly very helpful. Um, 
uh, I know it wasn't helpful for, for, for many industries and, and I always feel badly thinking about that, but for obviously e-commerce, it was um, very helpful. And we've been fortunate to be able to respond to that poll um, and invest aggressively and in, in, in continuing to scale our business and our team and our product and our customer base. So like, could you give like a, like a customer example, just so that, you know, the listeners have a full understanding of like, okay, how does this work? Well, it's really, there's a number of different phases, right? So there's the phase of like, Hey, is this product going to actually work? Um, and is it going to deliver value? And then there's the phase of like, can I start selling this to like a meaningful number of customers? And I remember the first one very well, it was G diapers, which is a, uh, organic diaper company that, um, was the first one to launch at the time we had a product that was built in Romania, which has since been, you know, um, we, we rebuilt the entire platform in the States from the ground up, um, since then. But when we launched, it was really a proof of concept around is our, our consumer is going to respond to this. And I remember like, it was, it was like, you know, 2 AM and I, and I like, guys, I can't handle any more of the launch. I can't help you at this point just cause I'm not, um, on the technical side as much, but I'm going to set my alarm for a few hours from now. And, you know, if you need me, here's a, here's a call, here's a number to call me. And I remember waking up to 18 subscriptions from G diapers. We were live and there was 18 subscriptions. And I remember, um, I remember thinking to myself like, okay, like we're onto something big here. And this was a, you know, this is some time ago. Uh, so that was a very big proof point in terms of consumers, um, consumer adoption. And it's one of the things we've always seen is it works almost every time we launch it, where, you know, you have, um, like consumers just subscribing to masses in an accelerated rate now that more and more consumers are getting comfortable with it. Then there's the point at like where you, um, you know, you um, are are trying to scale and add big customers. And I just remember, you know, being in some meetings, my, I bring a projector to these meetings in person in Florida or wherever it was, and just really trying to bang down the wall at the doors of these, of these, of these companies to, to just try our products and bigger companies. And I remember just getting positive feedback um, early on from a number of companies and just being so um, excited. But when it really gets interesting is when they actually like start signing contracts and they start um, implementing your software and they start getting live and then they really start becoming referenceable. And that's like the most gratifying part is when you make customers so happy that they're referenceable. And I honestly think like the number one thing you can do as an entrepreneur, besides finding the right market with the right timing, with the right problem to solve, like really zoning in on the problem to solve, it's just really create happy customers and focus on um, just getting them to be as referenceable as possible. Because if you have that, um, you know, you're, you're going to go a long way if you have a really large market um, and, you know, a committed team and so on and so forth. And the impact to these companies' business, I mean, you have some case studies on your website with you know, Yankee Candle and Kind Snacks where, I mean, just the, the revenue growth is it's, it's major. It's not significant. It's major. <laughs> well, that's a big shift. That's a great point. Like it's a big shift from where we came from. A lot of these businesses were launching subscriptions for the first time. And then over the past few years, I mean, a lot of our businesses, a lot of our customers are doing over 50%, sometimes 95% of their business is recurring revenue. It's the same, Keith, it's the same movement as software. Like 20 years ago, Mark Benioff invented SaaS and moved software from on-premise to subscription with SaaS. You know, our belief is, is that retail and D2C and e-commerce is going through the same transformation. And, and, you know, five, 10 years, if you're a, and it's happening today, if you're a CEO of a D2C brand, you're going to launch subscription first. So that's that, those economics make the most sense. And most importantly, it's what the consumer's expectations are, as you called out earlier. 
when that why that term relationship commerce makes sense because if I'm getting my coffee on subscription, I'm going to be loyal to that brand because it's just going to keep showing up to my house every month uh, versus going down the coffee aisle and being like, oh, what's that? I haven't tried that yet. Totally. Yep. Especially if you treat them like VIP, like the rich plan treats my mom. I'm not saying you have to show up to their house and put coffee in their freezer every week. Right. A month. <laughs> but there's ways to create that type of experience, you know, digitally nowadays. So where's the company now in terms of, you know, size of employees and growth plans ahead in terms of hiring? Yeah. So um, we're uh, approaching right around 120 people. Um, we're adding a bunch of folks right now. Our product and engineering is the number one area of investment. Um, you know, looking to, to add many teams to that to that as well. We're still working through 2022 um, budgets and plans, but we expect to add, you know, we'll be, we'll, we'll be, um, somewhere, you know, probably around between 150 and 200 in the coming quarters. So um, things are going really well. We're, we're adding, you know, many customers each each month, each week now, um, uh, certainly each quarter, some of the biggest brands in the world, some of the, you know, um, most innovative brands in the world. Um, and it's, you know, we really like the business and the market have just come a long way. And um, I couldn't be prouder of our team. It's been, it's been really hard. Like any, 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 Anybody starting a business, it's always hard. And when you're early, it's even harder, I would say. And a lot of businesses are. And um, I'm just so damn proud of our team for, you know, um, being in the position that we're in. We don't have everything figured out by any means, but we have a tremendous market opportunity that's larger than it's ever been. Um, and, you know, we're the leaders in the space and attracting some of the, the best brands in the world. So I don't know if, our, if, your, if your listeners know who some of our customers are. They know who they are, but I haven't shared, like, you know, whether it's like a L'Oreal or a Procter and Gamble or a um, a Walmart on the retail end, and then on the D 2 C end, you know, we work with um, all sorts of brands from the Honest Company to Il Maquillage, which is the fastest growing beauty brand in the world, to um, you know Darwin's Pets and and, and hundreds of other uh, mainstream brands. Now, as you talk about this growth, like what, what like what's the culture like at Order Groove? Like, what's it like to work there? Um. I mean, it's really revolves around our four core values. So our four core values are what you see is what you get, which speaks to authenticity and like, you know, like, listen, no politics. Like we, we, we are, you know, we're genuine with each other um, and comfortable uh, in our own skin. The second one is um, um, we drive results. Um, uh, that's actually the third one. The second one is uh, we're in it to win it, which is for the team versus for yourself. So it's really like, if you want to, if you just care about yourself and, not necessarily like not, not a bad thing per se, but not the right fit for what we're like, this is a team sport. We're really trying to put the company first and do what's in the best interest of our, of our company and our, and our, and our team members and each other. And then the customers as well. Um, and then the third one is uh, we drive results. We're very much a meritocracy where we focus on not as much hours. We don't care as much about how many hours you work versus the outcomes you're driving towards. And um, are you driving, you know, the, you know, are you delivering on what you um, said you're going to deliver on? Nobody's perfect. Obviously, people fall short all the time. But like, are you really focused on driving results and outcomes versus just the action to get there? Uh, and the last one I think I mentioned earlier is we're comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, whenever you're creating a new category, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, there's more certainty and clarity now, I would say, than, than ever because the market's becoming more and more mature. But, um, you know, when you're blazing a new trail, it's, it's not for everybody. It doesn't mean that it's not a... Um, talented person, but if, 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 if folks are looking to help create a playbook from the ground up, um, we're a great fit for that. And if some folks 
are less comfortable with that, then it, then it, it may or you know, may not be the right fit. So I think it's, um, those are our four core values. Like that's really what drives our culture. That drives who we fight, who we hire, who we promote, who we, you know, have tough, tough conversations with. Um, and uh, it's really the DNA of the company. And even the core values have been a journey. Like we used to have seven and folks couldn't remember them, including myself and our head of people, Karen Weeks, um, who I think, you know, Keith, um, mm-hmm. did, yeah, did a great. terrific, yeah, she's terrific. Uh, yeah, did a terrific job a number of years ago of leading the company from, from every, every, a uh, team member had their uh, fingerprints on it to um, redefine our core values to the floor. And I, I can truly say that they are the foundation of our people. And we've got just a really, really world-class team of um, just really great human beings first and really talented people too, that care for each other to the second core values. So um, anyways, that's, that's really how we think about culture and um, just driving high performance across the organization. Now, hiring is tough, especially in a market like this where it's very competitive. So what like what advice would you give to founders on like maybe like the the executive team, like building out, you know, the different VPs or C-level executives in a company and making sure that you're getting the right hires for those roles? Yeah, uh, really hard, really, really hard um, to, to build a, a great, great team. Um, and I mean, for me, it's first getting real clarity. On what the four or five core competencies are, not six, not seven, not eight. Every now and then you can creep to six, but I would not go beyond five, ideally, you know, no more than six. What are the core competencies for this role? Like, what do they have to have? What are the must haves? Let's get aligned around those. We, we know we want more. We know we want the unicorn. Everybody wants to hire a unicorn, but there's not a lot of them. So let's get really clear on what are the nice to have, like the not that, sorry, the must have the requirements. And then align the entire, like, who's the, interview committee or not committee, but who's the interview team, I would say, um, and, and make sure we're all aligned around, you know, what we're trying to hire, um, what are the competencies, define the process very clearly, including at the end of each process, we have typically some homework or a presentation that um, kind of puts them in the role that the candidate, they learn a lot about order group through that, which is beneficial for them. And we learn, of course, a lot about them and how they think. Uh, and then stick to the process and trust the process. Um, I would say like, you know, reference checks are important. Having advisors, coaches, mentors for key executive hires get involved is critical. There, in my opinion, besides like picking the right market and, and problem to solve and obviously fundraising and such, like there's nothing more important you can be doing. And there's no decision you want to get more right than executive hires. Like that is super critical. And one of the biggest, like, you know, Andy, using Andy Grove's like leverage, it's one of the biggest points of leverage, or it probably is the biggest point of leverage a CEO can do or, or, or achieve. Um, and you don't always get it right, right? I think you have to acknowledge that. You, but you really should strive to get it as close to, like, you know, right as possible. And if you get it wrong, which happens, which I've certainly had my misses on, just make sure you correct it for the for the person that you hired and for yourself as quickly as for the company as quickly as possible. You owe it to them and you owe it to the company. But it's about the process, and then and then making sure you're you're you know you're never going to be a hundred percent confident. I find that sometimes I've hired people, people when I'm 70% or 65% confident um, and they ended up being like amazing A++. And then sometimes you go into it knowing you're 90% confident they're going to work out. And usually those, you know, work out. So um, that's how I think about it. But I think it's such a critical piece and something you really want to get right. There's some things you can, you can screw up and you will screw up and you will screw up hiring as well from time to time, but really try to nail it by surrounding yourself with the right process and the right interview team and advisors that had been through it before so that you can avoid paying some of the dumb taxes is one of my advisors said. 
Well, so once you have all that defined, like, how do you, like, how do you build up the funnel of great candidates? Like, is it your network? Uh, it's, it's all hands on deck. Like everybody's searching LinkedIn. Everybody's, you know, talking to their networks. We're talking to our investors, to our board of directors, to our advisory network, um, recruiters internally and externally. But let, I mean, listen, it's the most competitive job market, I think, in tech ever. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of success, but we also have a number of, a bunch of open roles that we can't hire soon enough for. Um, now, but we're, you know, we're still being very thoughtful and adhering to the process that I, I shared and making sure that we're, we're bringing on like just world-class people and then, and then talent as well. Um, but yeah, it's really just, it's, 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 it's just, it's really working and, and, and hustling to, to, to meet those folks and, um, networking however we can, um, to continue to cast a wide net. And also you can, you know, air cover of marketing and branding things like this, for example, you know, are, are wonderful ways you've built up an incredible audience over the years. And, um, you know, how do you just make sure that you are, um, um, casting a wide enough net, um, while also doing the groundwork to make sure the process is, is, is smooth and, 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 uh, quick and, um, delightful for the, for the interviewee. So looking back now that Orgroove is where it is today, like what advice would you give to your younger self when starting the company other than, you know, maybe wait three more years until starting it, uh, <laughs> you know, that early to market conversation we already had, but whatever, what other advice would you give yourself? Yeah. And listen, I don't even have many regrets about that because where we are, we are, where we are now is just wonderful, but it's, it's, right. it's in retrospect, I would definitely be very thoughtful about timing. Um, that's a great question. I think the people element I just referenced is really, really important. And I think um, finding a great advisor who's built like, like hired and built world-class teams and say, I need you to be in this with me for the first X number of hires as part of the process, because you really want to nail those. Um, I think like, you know, um, just being very clear on the problem that you're trying to solve um, and the market you're going after um, and, and really focusing on just obsessing over customer happiness. I think, I think that is whoever your customer is. I think that is a real like growth hack that anybody can adopt at any time. Um, and I think like if you, if you focus on a, a big problem that you're passionate about and you, um, focus on really happy customers and, you know, um, you're going to be able to raise money, A. And then B, you'll be able to, if you have the right process and the right team surrounding you of supporters, you'll be able to hire a great team as well. Um, but it's what you hear. It's like, it comes down to people, people, people. And, but I think the idea does matter. I think like timing matters. I think markets matter. And, um, and focusing on less the idea and more the problem that you're really solving. It's very, it's very subtle, but it's, it's important. I think a lot of people fall in love with solutions. And I think the most important thing to fall in love with is like, okay, here's the problem that I'm passionate about solving. And it's, if I solve this, this is a huge unlock and a huge market opportunity for, you know, I'm making this up with millions or billions of people. So you talked about having an advisor. So I was going to ask you that question of like, so who do you count on for advice of building a company like mentorship? Yeah. Um, you know, it's changed over the years. I, I think I've had some amazing advisors for different stages of the business. Some are really good at scrappiness and starting it. Like a gentleman named Michael Goldstein, who I met while I was at GW's, was, was, a, was actually speaking in the class that I now speak at. And we speak together. We co-speak together, which is a lot of fun. 
Um, you know, he was great at like the scrappiest earliest stages, um, I would say, and still obviously tremendous, um, um, tremendous guy and talent. Um, and then like, you know, you get later on, like problems become more on scale and people and, um, you know, product and customers and like real, like, how are we going to build a, you know, multi billion dollar business or whatever the size of business you're trying to build. Um, you know, today, like who I rely on the most is honestly, my wife, Carolyn is, um, like just an incredible rock and in, in the whole journey. Like it's, it's not easy as, as everybody here knows. And, um, she's just like amazing and critical. Um, you know, I have, I have coaches, uh, Kirk Dando, um, and the guy I mentioned earlier, Richard Lavin, who's a dear friend who are just, you know, help me with different parts of, of the business, but whether it's people or go to market, um, they're, they're amazing. You know, I have, um, a gentleman named Brett Hurt, who's a world-class entrepreneur and CEO who I rely on quite a bit and, you know, uh, our investors and, uh, um, you know, I, I don't want to name folks because then I'm going to like leave people out. Right. Forget somebody. Done. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, just everybody that's been with me in the journey, I'm deeply appreciative of. And I think different stages require different um, people um, and, you know, constantly should be looking to surround the business with folks that know where the problems you're facing right now and how you're going to get to the other side of them to continue your growth trajectories. But just people like really good, you know, people that you don't feel you can call at any time and you don't feel like you're ever being judged. I think that's really important. And obviously just that have been through the trenches before. So you can avoid some of the mistakes and lessons they've learned. All right. Any podcasts or book recommendations that you'd have? Mike and, and, his, and his amazing wife and dear friend of mine, Julie, um, Mike runs a, um, uh, um, started a podcast called Starting Greatness. That I just feel like is very practical, sound advice and from people that have been through it. And um it's a great entrepreneurial listen and um, something I highly recommend. I haven't listened to that one yet. So I'm, I'm such a consumer of that type of content. So I'm absolutely going to check that one out. Yeah. It's great to go for a walk in the cold and listen to that stuff. Yeah, no, I, like I've, I've started finally doing the audio books in the car, just at you know, one and a half times speed. And that's, that's amazing too. It's uh it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, so, I wonder if the one and a half times speeds a personality trait. I obviously do it as well, but I wonder if, if you can tell the personality type by how they listen to their audio books. Yeah. Cause I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> this is a nine hour book. You know, like, let's right. go. Let's I need to make this. this at least six and a half, right? Or whatever. Right, exactly. So, all right. Well, you're building a company, like you're busy at home. So, but what do you like to do outside, outside of work? Do you still play tennis or? I do still play tennis. I try to play twice a week on Monday mornings and Saturdays. Um, I don't always get there, but I, I, I try to down the street from my, my house. Um, you know, I live in Brooklyn, New York with my, my, my wife, Carolyn, I mentioned, and our three kids and dog. And I've got, mm -hmm. uh, five-year-old, three-year-old and 10-month-old. And okay. uh, I, All right. I, I know what be, you're I going at. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't be more, you know, I couldn't be happier and more fortunate and grateful for my family, but that takes up most of my time, as you can imagine. Um, you know, we love to travel as much as we can too. So um, it's, uh, I feel very blessed in that regard. Well, I haven't played it yet, but it seems like the whole world is like, are you doing the pickleball thing yet or paddleball or? No. Having picked up yeah. pickleball or paddleball, but it has come yeah. up quite a bit recently. Yeah, it seems like everybody's doing it, but I just haven't jumped in yet. But I, 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 I stick to tennis and 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 you know weights and walking. Those are my uh, those are my go tos. 
Well, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your journey in terms of entrepreneurship, building Order Groove, and obviously all the uh, the lessons learned and advice shared. Thanks for having me, Keith. Really always great to be with you today. And thanks for everybody for listening. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.